Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. Today, we'll be talking to Catherine Baz about her story, The Treasure Hunt of August Diaz, which appears in issue 20 of The Common. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Catherine Baz is the author of the novels Sodad and Mariana, the latter translated in six languages, her story collection, Fado and Other Stories, won the Drew Hines Literature Prize, and the collection, Our Lady of the Artichokes and Other Portuguese-American Stories, won the Prairie Schooner Book Prize. She's the first Portuguese-American to have her work recorded for the archives of the Law- Library of Congress, and she served on the six-person presidential delegation to the World's Fair in Lisbon in 1998. She is a teacher of writing the Luso Experience, a workshop at the Disquiet Conference each summer in Lisbon. Catherine Baz, thanks for joining us. Well, I'm so happy to be here, Emily. I uh, love the Common Magazine, so this is a real treat for me. Yeah, we're so glad to talk with you. Would you set the scene for our conversation and describe where you're living and where you're calling from? Yes, I'm right now in very, very snowy New York City. I live in the middle of Manhattan uh, with my husband in our uh, mutual national, international lockdown. Um, I originally was born and raised in California, but I've lived in the East Coast uh, quite a long time now. And uh, my father was from the Azores, which will be significant in a lot of uh, what we talk about and in uh, a lot of the things I've written. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for, for introing your family background as well. I was going to ask you to do that. Um, I would love to start off with a reading from your story. Would you read that first paragraph for us? I, I would love to. Thank you, Emily. Um, this is the first paragraph from The, Tre- the Treasure Hunt, of August Diaz. The apricot tree in my childhood yard would seethe the night. Pouring through the open work of the leaves, the moonlight littered the ground with patches shaped like bats. Because we lived in the sunset district of San Francisco, sea drafts kept ruffling the leaves, so the bats were always fluttering their wings. Sometimes I would lie down and let the light bats tap all over me. We lived in the bottom flat of a spindly three-story home, and there was a fig tree too, and blackberries on brambles thick as the Lord's crown of thorns, right in the heart of the city. We had picnics with the cajadas my father made, the coconut tarts that were a specialty of his family's bakery on the island of Terceira in the Azores. His job while raising me, his only child, was fulfilling dessert orders for restaurants, and he rented a tiny industrial kitchen in Chinatown from three to nine in the morning. Once a triumph, the Tadich Grill requested his alphaning to decorate their pastry cart, the white sugar confection molded into doves or miniature baskets. Thanks for reading that. I think that that opening paragraph really gives us a sense of the story and how, how vast it is. Uh, Would you describe what the piece is about just for our listeners who haven't read it yet? Um, Yes. 
this story is very special to me because it's one I've been trying to write for for many, many years. And uh, it's about a father dying and his daughter coming to grips with that. She moves back as a young woman into her childhood home in San Francisco. And her father creates a treasure hunt for her to go on through the city. And though it's a city that they've lived in and that she grew up in, um, San Francisco, um, it's a way of getting her up and around so she doesn't fall inside grief. And also because in his dying days, they will have things to talk about that relate to the, to you might say, to life itself, to making discoveries, uh, to finding clues and following them. In a personal way, um, I lost my own father a few years ago, and he loved making treasure hunts up for us. Uh, he would put them around our yard and we would follow them. I've always been fascinated by scavenger hunts and that kind of thing as well. Um, there's a there's a particular book mentioned in my story that was quite a sensation uh, for those of us who are, I would say, probably over 60 years old. It was a book called Masquerade, done by an English um, artist named Kit Williams, and it, it's hard to capture how um, gripped everyone was with reading that book, looking at the, the paintings he had done and trying to find the jewel he had buried. It didn't occur to us that if we lived in England, we'd have a better chance of finding it. But anyway, this story is a tribute. It's a Valentine to San Francisco, and it's a Valentine to my late father and to the fascination of, um, you might say, just discovering and rediscovering the places we live to fall in love with a place as well as a person. Uh, that's a, a beautiful description of what the story is about. Um, would you say, I guess I was kind of under the impression that you had written this story fairly quickly, even though you, but you already kind of had the outline or the general idea of it. But um, is, is that not the case? Did it, did it take you a long time to write? Um, well, it, the, the funny thing is, and I give a lot of credit uh, to editor Jennifer Acker and to you and to everyone else at the comment, I wrote a story to submit for the special Lusso um, issue. And for your listeners who may not know what that means, um, Lusso American is means Portuguese American. The reason for that is because the old Roman word for Portugal was Lusitania. So Lusso Americans are Portuguese Americans. Um, and I, you know, really wanted to, I've, a lot of my life's work has been about growing up in the uh, Portuguese American community. And um, I turned in a story that I read over and then I thought, you know, I really don't like it. I, I don't think I've ever said that to an editor. I don't <laughs> think I've ever said, you know what, I, I'm reading this over and I'm making that fundamental mistake of the backstory seems more interesting interesting than the main one. Uh, so Jennifer was really generous and she said, um, you want to try something else? And I thought, let me see if I can finally do this treasure hunt story I've wanted to do for years. Um, there was a, there was a, you might say almost a fad for a while, a number of years ago with what were called armchair treasure hunts, um, based on this book masquerade that I just talked about. Mm -hmm. And, They've fallen by the wayside now because people would got a little obsessed with them. And, uh, but I've always wanted to do that. So frankly, my inspiration was having a really short deadline and just thinking, all right. And 
you know, I was very close to my father and I was there when he died a few years ago. Um, I, he died within 40 hours of me going back home to California. And so you might say just the, the pain of writing about that made me want to put it down as quickly as I could. So that, um, you know, so that was an impetus you might say, but there's nothing like a deadline to, to inspire creativity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially if you've been kind of mulling it over for years. I mean, I think. Well, yeah, floating around in my head, I'd like to do something that's about that, but I didn't have the story. I had the (laughs) idea, which is, as um, everyone knows, is very different. (laughs) Yes. Not quite halfway. Uh, so I was going to ask you, uh, you know, we, we often work with writers on edits to a story. And I, I know that you worked on some revisions on this story with, with Jennifer Acker, our editor in chief, who you mentioned before. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that process? Like what's it like to get feedback and, and deciding what changes you want to make based on that feedback? Um, sure. I think, um, I'm lucky in that I've worked with a lot of extremely perceptive and generous and big hearted editors. And I, I don't want to be a trial for readers. I want to have them fall into the world of a story I write and enjoy it and not feel like, okay, I, I'm lost. So I really take it as guideposts and guidelines when uh, an editor says, you know, I, I don't know what you're talking about here, or I got confused. And also because I want my characters to be active, not just walking around thinking about things. And so I, um, I enjoy the process and many editors are also writers themselves. So it strikes me as very generous to go into someone else's mindset and world and, uh, truly try to help them. I, I've always had very, very good luck with editors and, you know, Jennifer was one of them and, I guess my personality is also I'm detail oriented. So I need help in sometimes getting rid of extraneous details. But I also really enjoy working with people who are minute about things like saying, okay, you've got this word here and then again here. And I, I like to fine tune things. And so I work really well with editors who like to do that too. Uh, Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. I love the idea that, that, um, that the, some of the most helpful feedback is just hearing what the reader experiences when they're, when they're reading it. Like I found this part confusing or I didn't know what you meant there. Like, I, I agree that that is, that is almost more helpful than someone telling you like exactly what the story needs or exactly what should be done. Um, yeah. I mean, it's almost like, where did you feel like you could put it down and walk away and come back to it? Um, <laughs> I, I had an editor who gave me really good advice once, which it sounds very simple, but she said, um, okay, I'm not clear about this line you have here. Um, what are you trying to say here? And she said, just say it and then put that in. And I, <laughs> I, I stop myself and think of that a lot when I'm working on something. Okay, what do you mean here? And Don't make the reader find it out. You do, you do the work. And um, why don't you just say it the way you mean it? So uh, that was sounded like a very simple bit of advice, but really was very helpful. Yeah, I really love that. That's something I'm quite passionate about as an editor, I think. Um, and I know that, that Jennifer is as well, that uh, there's so much pressure on writers these days to to show instead of telling. And I think it just, sometimes we go a little too far in that direction and we, we lose a lot of clarity, which can be very frustrating for, for readers. And why not make it a little easier? <laughs> yeah, as you know, sometimes just, just tell me what happens here and let's move on. And, 
you, you know, uh, Fernando Pessoa is a Portuguese modernist poet who's gotten very, very popular. And he has this wonderful line about you may come up with the perfect word, but that doesn't mean it's in the perfect sentence. You may have the perfect sentence, but it doesn't mean it's going to be in a perfect paragraph and so on and so forth. So um, I think just, you know, it's the show, not tell workshop workshop um, uh, familiar line, but um, sometimes you just have to tell people certain things and it can suture things and, and move things along. So pacing is very important too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, this story appears in our portfolio, as you mentioned, it was writing from the Lusosphere, uh, which is uh, Portugal, it's colonial, cultural, linguistic diaspora. Um, and it's one of several beautiful pieces we have by Portuguese American writers in that issue. Um, and I think that they're really diverse pieces. And it made me wonder, do you like, can you find or do you think there is something specific that characterizes Portuguese American writing? Are there certain themes or styles or ideas that you often find in that world? Or is it just too broad to, to really summarize? Well, I think each person is an individual who's going to have a unique voice. I mean, that goes without saying, I guess that's the qualifier. Um but uh, in my case, I, I come from not just Portuguese, but Azorian roots. And the Azores are, you know, nine, an archipelago of nine islands in the middle of the Atlantic. Most of the Portuguese immigrants, in, certainly in California and in other places too, were from the Azores, not really from the mainland. So you might say the idea of island culture or the sensibility that comes out of being uh, in a in a geographically small place can can really affect uh, sensibility. Uh, there's a 19th century Portuguese writer named Essa de Carroj who described the Portuguese temperament as jittery melancholia, which I just love. <laughs> and so I would say um, I will get in trouble if I don't mention sodad, which is a very Portuguese word that means. It's supposed to be one of those impossible to define words. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been called sweet sadness, um, longing. Um, I describe it as the presence of an absence, a longing for people or time or place that you may not even have ever seen. It's a kind of longing. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of Portuguese writing has that kind of longing. And it's historic, too, because people... In small countries, I bet a lot of Irish writers could say the same. The children go up to leave in a lot of cases. So there's a kind of sensibility. But I'll tell you a very, very, I think there's a kind of sensibility to color. I think my father had a kind of variety of synesthesia color thinking. I wish I could say the same. I don't have that. But um, I think my father had a kind of real sharp uh, attunement to color but I'll tell you a really brief story that I think uh, describes Portuguese writing or sensibility, and a lot of other people can identify with it also. I have a dear friend who's an historian uh, in Maine, and my husband and I visited his cabin that his grandfather built in Maine uh, one summer, and they had a plaque on the wall which said, um, a wishbone ain't as likely to get ye as far as a backbone. And I laughed about that. And I said, Alan, I, I know that I come from a wishbone people. And he said, unfortunately, I come from a backbone people and I wish I were a wishbone. 
So I would say Portuguese people would probably say they're more wishbone as, as a sensibility. And in fact, I signed my letters to Alan when we exchanged notes as wishbone and he writes backbone. <laughs> so I think, um, I think that there is a, you, you know, I, I, I wrote a story once when there was a dispute over some land my father had in the Azores. And it got really very heated. And my godmother and I said, let's just run at one point. And then we realized you really can't escape anywhere. Um, Americans, you, you can hide from people, you can move, you can go away. But in the Azores, what we found is you, you can't escape. So what kind of sensibility do you have about that? But I would say if there's one word to describe Portuguese American writing sensibility, it would be so dodd. Uh, yeah, that's actually, that's a really good point. And I love this idea of, of the wishbone people. I think <laughs> I that strikes me as a very writerly disposition. Exactly. Like, that's I'm why I think surprised. a lot of your, yeah, I think a lot of your listeners will say, well, I, I, you know, I don't need to be Portuguese. I'm definitely wishbone. So, <laughs> so. yeah. Uh, yeah. And there is, there's lots of great, I think a lot of the, the Luso American writers that are in this issue are actually really writing about, you know, family back in the Azores, um, published a couple of poems. And I think, most of them were set in California and most of them were from people who had, who had family in the Azores. So I think there's obviously strong, a really strong community of that in California. Oh, there's a huge community of that in California. My father was um, a, one of the leading lectures on Portuguese culture in California. And in fact, he wrote a book that people still point to called the Portuguese in California. And there's a kind of, of interesting sense of being in such a vast open state when you've come from a small village or, uh, you know, an island. So I think that tension or it's not always a conflict. It's just the way it is, um, really affected how I looked at writing and looked at, um, that people can be sitting around doing nothing and they carry a certain inherent tension or dichotomy of, of who they internally are. Yeah, I mean that is that is rich writing fodder right there. <laughs> um, so as you know, the Common publishes writing with a modern sense of place, and and San Francisco is a huge part of of this story that you've written. Could you tell us about writing the city and like how you put the treasure hunt together on the page? Um, sure, I I grew up on the east side of the bay. I grew up in um, uh, yeah, I went to high school in Oakland, at, and but. The city to me was always like the Emerald City, the great place, the magical place. You know, and it was just going across one bridge to get there, but it seemed like a grand world to me. And so writing the city, um, my father was an historian and we would go on these, they were kind of like treasure hunts. We would go on very funny walks around the city where we would, here's where the, the laboratory of the Wizard of Green Street was. Here are the parrots of Telegraph Hill. Uh, my father, when he took us to Golden Gate Park, the Japanese tea gardens, which are very well known, said, oh, it was a Japanese businessman who invented the fortune cookie, but he didn't patent it. So, um, he, you know, so, so, I, so it was really a way of falling back in love with the city. Um, it, it was always the shining star when I was growing up. And so I think that, it's a way of, if you can fall in love with a place, if it can be like a person to you, if you can open yourself up to 
what a city means, then it's a way of dealing with grief. And the father deliberately sends her out on this treasure hunt in the city so she can discover and rediscover and and basically just keep moving and um, deal with grief that way by seeing that the world is something still magical and still with things you can discover. So San Francisco has always been that to me. And, um, you know, just since I was a child, I have a lot of books about the interesting little tucked away places you can you can find in in San Francisco, like the the you can do audio bathing. You can <laughs> you really can go and listen to what they call the you know the sound organ, which they built into the bay, and it makes this kind of groaning sound. Uh, to me, San Francisco was what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I feel <laughs> the same way about uh, New York City, where I live now, just the feeling that you can turn a corner and the world is new or different. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in, in preparation for this conversation, I reread your story that we published in issue 18 of The Common, which is called Revenge in the Name of All Owls. It is such a great story, and it's, it's been a favorite around the office among our interns especially. And, and it, it's also a story about family and loss and grief. So I felt like it was, it was a very nice companion to the treasure hunt story. And it, and it has this really lovely sense of community in it as well, pe- people helping each other and supporting each other. Could, could you talk more about that? Is, that? is that a hallmark of Luso-American communities in your experience? Well, um, it, it, I, don't, I don't really know if I can speak to what it is now so much as when I was younger. Mm-hmm. There were a lot, a lot of the uh, people came from the Azores were worked in the dairies or ranches in, and in San Diego, a lot of them were fishermen or tuna fishermen and so forth. But, um, so it's very different from the Portuguese population of the East coast, Mm -hmm. but there were all these societies that were set up like the IDES and the UPPEC, um, that were designed to help widows, to help families that would lose their husbands and and needed an insurance, needed uh, needed support. So there was a, a lot of uh, the the Azores tends to be very uh, religious. So a lot of the um, you might say the Catholicism came over with the you know this the wonderful saint statues and and so forth that I thought were pretty magical. Um, but I think that there was a sense of community in trying to keep uh, some of the traditions alive and to look out for one another because, um, you know, it was an era where the women raised the families who didn't work so much. And I still think now there's a there's a there's a lot of pride in being uh, Portuguese American. But the the owl story, frankly, I, this is a dangerous thing to say. <laughs> But it was kind of a gift because I wrote it really fast. Uh, it it just came to me. And the, there are very few stories where that's happened to me, but it just came to me. And I did it in a couple of days. And I was so happy with it. And, you know, it felt like a breath of life to me. So it was a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that I'm trying to do a cycle of stories about people connected in the Portuguese community so that's one of the stories where I'm experimenting with it. If if there's a if there's a kind of a Portuguese Californian attitude, it's this: um, we love our solitude, but we want to do it together. So I would describe that. Um, that's probably a good philosophy of, of um, for for writers anyway. 
But I wanted to do a cycle of stories that are based around this Portuguese restaurant that, um, you know, involves not just grief, but learning secrets and taking care of one another. So it's I'm experimenting with seeing if there's a cycle that could turn into a book with those. Uh, yeah, you read my mind because my very next story was going to be about that. Um, you know, I've read a couple uh, drafts of, of of stories that we didn't end up publishing and stories that we did. And in them, I, I've started to recognize some of the same characters popping up. And certainly I started recognizing the, the family restaurant that, that pops up in a couple of stories. And I feel like we have these kind of weddings and these large events where I would see characters that I knew from other stories. <laughs> and I love that. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah I, I love that kind of s- story. It's sort of, um, you know, like the, the Olive Kittredge kind of mm-hmm. idea that you get some characters all the way through, but very different angles and, and very different tones. And it, you know, it's just looking at um, different prisms of things, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, it's true. If, if you see characters from different points of view and they pop up in different stories, you can see, you know, much more, m- much more facets of them than you could see in just one story. Yeah, and it's fun to know things about them that the people in the the uh, second story are not really seeing. So I, you know, that that's always fun too. So, um, but but uh, that that's one project that's kind of ongoing. But I have just finished as of I. I literally a week ago, um, a new novel, which is, I've been working on for 15 years, I'm embarrassed to say, and it's 570 pages. um, And that is with a lot of cuts made. (laughs) But that is a story of immigration and civil, it's sort of a love in the time of cholera set in the civil war with Portuguese people. Um, There really was a group of people from Madeira who emigrated uh, due to religious violence because they had been converted to Presbyterianism and they were adopted by Illinois at the time of Lincoln. And I found a character who courted a woman he met in the Lincoln household. And then he went away uh, in the Union Army and lost her for 50 years. Mm-hmm. So I've been working, it feels like 50 years I've been working on this, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I've just now um, you know, what happened was I gave a talk at the Library of Congress when my first novel came out and the woman in the Hispanic division there where I was giving the talk happened to be Brazilian. And she said, you know, there's some maps in the map division I think you would find really great. And they were um, called the Portuguese Protestants of Illinois, which made me laugh. I mean, <laughs> we both laughed about that. Um, but I began uh, a long I didn't know it would take me 15 years to figure out the story and how to tell it. And, um, but it, it is based on true events. And I've never really, I'm not a Civil War buff, but it's, it's also about the heart of America when an era when Americans were trying to figure out how much should we be about community and how much should we be about individual striving and rights. And obviously, we're still working on that one. Um, For sure. With, <laughs> um, but but it's I have that sort of um, post long book Snowdian blues I guess at the moment, uh, but also relief. So that has been sent to my agent, and now now the waiting begins. 
That's so exciting. And also, I just want you to know that I really sympathize with the overlong novel because <laughs> oh, I'm, okay. I'm okay. struggling with the same problem right now. I'm, you know, trying how, to make it a more modest have, side. How many years have you been? Um, probably this is only the third year I've been working on it, but I just, it wants to be long. It, it is. It's well, let it be long. Yeah. Let it be long. I think it's and also, then, I mean, you'll sympathize. It's, um, you know, when you're writing about history, in America, there's just too much to say, you know, like, like you were describing, like the, the comparison between the collective and the individual and like that balance and stuff. And, you know, when you're talking about stuff like that, it, it needs to stretch out a little. <laughs> well, it does. And then, but it's really how many tributaries do you, do you form? And I, I, you know, the good news is that it's so complicated, it'll take you a long time. And by then you're less attached to certain aspects of history, like, for, sure. for example, I, I, found, <laughs> I found out there's a diet called, a lot of people probably know this, um, uh, called cochineal, which is made of, it's a fuchsia color that's made of the bodies of female insects. And it was used in cooking. So you could have pink frosting and so forth. And um, Mary Todd Lincoln was a, was a big dessert baker and eater. And so she had co- recipes in her cookbook with cochineal and so I thought, I've got to get that in. And, you know, some of that just falls by the wayside. So I guess, you know, Emily, the good news is that um, if you work on it long enough, you'll get less attached to certain things and you'll just think, fine, it can go, fine, it can go. And you'll still end up with a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think I might be at that stage now. Like I'm just, yeah, I'm <laughs> so tired of looking at the same thing over and over again that if it doesn't if it doesn't spark joy, I get rid of it. <laughs> There you go. I, yeah, I'm all for that. But yeah, so many good juicy details in history. And the more research you do, the more you want to include and kind of the less you can include. <laughs> well, it's, it's, and it opens up and you want the panoramic feeling of the backdrop of time and what's going on. And then you think, okay, but this is also about what are my characters doing and mm-hmm. so forth. So it's a, it's a real juggling act. Yeah, for sure. What era are you writing? Uh, I'm writing about the, about World War II, like the home front in America. Oh, okay. So yeah. that's a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the, the great news is there's so much research and so much documentation. Like, I'm sure, you know, writing about the Civil War is probably much more difficult because we have, you know, less primary sources and that kind of thing. But um, sometimes well, I was, think a lot of research just makes it harder. <laughs> well, it does. And then you sort of dread what you're going to find out because it'll be so good you won't want to give it up. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I found about battles that were not really written very much about, but that seemed really extremely, my character was actually in those battles. Mm -hmm. And there was something called the Meridian Raid, which was uh, something I I did a lot of research about, and there was very little about it. So uh, I also had fun doing the research. And then I got, I think you're supposed to get four times more than you think you need, and then start cutting. Okay, okay. (laughs) That's good (laughs) to know. Um, uh, I was going to ask you about this sort of, uh, in your career, you've written several short story collections. You've also written two novels and now, now three, what is it that about stories that really appeals to you? Like, is there something that you go to stories for that you don't go to novels for either in reading or in writing? Um, I like the size of them. I like the feeling that you're supposed to, uh, Nadine Gordimer has a lovely, uh, line that I'm not, I'm not going to get quite correct, but she says it's, uh, stories are a drop of human fluid. And so I, I think that's a good way to look at it. It's like, how can I tell the world in 
10 pages or 30 pages or something like that. I like, I like the, conf- I like the creativity that comes from confinement in that way. And uh, can I get this all down in a quick moving way? And then novels are of course um, building a whole, whole world. So um, I think they're different. Well, let me correct that. I think they're different ways of building a world. You want the whole world in a short story and you want it in a, a novel too. But frankly, I, I like the feeling that you can accomplish a story um, in a few pages. I, I like the, the art, the art of, of that. Um, it doesn't necessarily follow that it's in a short amount of time that you can do a story as the story that we started talking about that I did for the common, uh, the treasure hunt of August Diaz was in my mind for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote it in maybe two weeks. I'm forgetting exactly. So I wasn't really working on it, but it was in my head. Right. I also, uh, you know, I love that, that thing about short stories that you described um, with the owl story where it just comes, it downloads right from your brain onto the page and then it's done and, it's a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle. They, they don't seem to come as often as we'd like. No. <laughs> um, but but when I was doing the novel, I would just look at these chapters. I, they were just a gaping hole that the I was working with a freelance editor helping me. And he would say, okay, the, you need to do this in, these, in this chapter. And I would just look at it and think, okay, just do it. And I um, tried to write quickly so that it would have a, f- a feeling of ease and lightness when I was uh, doing it. Mm-hmm. But, um, e- e- yeah, I mean, I, I think that they're, they're different. I mean, one's a symphony and one's, you know, more of a, uh, a shorter piece. And, they're, you know, they're both music. Yeah, definitely very different, very different skills, yeah. Um, I would love to hear, just because I'm personally curious, uh, your novel, Mariana, I first learned about, when I was reading another essay that appears in the, in the issue by Una Patrick, um, which mentions this nun Mariana, would mm-hmm. you just tell our listeners a little bit about that novel? Oh, I had, that was a lot of research. Um, <laughs> there's a, there's a nun called, uh, sort of, um, Mariana Alcufarado is her last name from Beja, B-E-J-A in Portugal. And at the time, you know, the 18th century, Girls were actually put into the convent, not because they had a vocation, but because their their rich fathers didn't want to divide their land among too many sons-in-law. Uh-huh. And so they had like little cities of women. They, they, uh, they had affairs. They had studio apartments. They, in some ways, they were freer than their married sisters. And there is one nun in particular who is said to have written five love letters to a French cavalry officer with whom she had an affair when France came to aid Portugal in the war against Spain. It was said that France was doing this because they were looking at Portugal as a um, really wonderful beachfront property for France. But there's, a, there's an academic argument that it was a French author who invented her the Portuguese believe that she was a real person and they have research and documentation to prove that. But I thought, I don't want to argue about that. I just want to write a novel about her life because I'm interested in solitary women and what do they do with that and how does passion 
translate into art. The letters are considered some of the most romantic documents in existence. And to the point that Rilke wrote about her, uh, Matisse did drawings imagining her, so did Medigliani. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was famous in Europe. And so when I wrote the novel, I wanted to just tell a life story of this woman as I, uh, using my research, envisioned it. Um, The book did really well in Europe. um, And, you know, this nun is really popular in Germany because of Rilke. And some of the most fun I had as a writer were with this novel because I went on a book tour in Italy, which was really a hoot. That sounds great. <laughs> um, but but I would say it's it's about the passions of a nun who had to figure out how to translate a sexual passion and romance uh, into art and then into life because, you know, she was young when she had this affair and lived a long life. That's great. I, I have got to pick up this novel. It sounds so great. Uh, is there anything else that we should know that you're working on? Like what's next from you beyond beyond this novel and, and the stories that you're working on? Well, I've kind of done a just a total collapse after finishing this long novel. <laughs> and I think that probably after that, I'm going to look at those um, stories in that cycle that, that um, the owl story is probably in and um, maybe the treasure hunt of August Diaz. I'm not sure, but, but um to kind of warm around, do I, I tend to do short stories after I've done a novel just because I want to, um, yeah. plunging into a, a long novel is is a real commitment and a story I can back out of. So for sure, um, <laughs> um, after I just get my energy back, I think I'll, I'll look at some of those stories that are like the um, the ones that the Communist published. That's great. I think you deserve a break and you should take it. (laughs) I mean, I was, my school was run by Spanish nuns. So I always feel guilty if I'm not working. I Um, see. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I need to get over that. Uh, But um, also we moved in New York during the pandemic. And so, um, you know, they're settling in to do. You have boxes. Yeah. There are a lot of boxes. I understand. I understand. There Uh, are a few boxes. Well, it has been so great to talk with you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I really, I really enjoyed this. Uh, thanks so much for making time. Well, Emily, thank you so so much, and really uh, thank you, you know, from the bottom of my heart to to you and everyone at the Common because it, you've made me feel like I have a wonderful literary home. Oh well, we would love to be that home for you, <laughs> <laughs> listeners. You can read Catherine's story, The Treasure Hunt of August Diaz, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.